You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Tom Lin, American writer and 2022 Andrew Carnegie fiction medalist. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So it's set during 1869, which is the last year of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is usually what we point to when we say, you know, when does America become a bi-coastal country? When does America begin its kind of long industrialization towards military dominance in the 20th century? It all begins with this railroad, which we construct at enormous expense, and it links the West Coast and the East Coast together by rail. And the way that we managed to build it so quickly was because we used enormous numbers of Chinese laborers, at least on the West side. Between Salt Lake and Sacramento, we used thousands thousands of Chinese laborers whose names are now forgotten merely because they haven't been archived. The process of history is a process of selection. And so what the archive has selected for preservation is not the stories of those Chinese laborers, but rather the stories of the industrialists and the businessmen who funded the venture and coordinated with Congress. And what's funny is you'll see history books about the building of the railroad. And what they're referring to by that word building is the organization of the industrial process. So again, those businessmen and the people who built the railroad in that sense, who funded the railroad, their legacies remain with us today. Leland Sanford had Stanford University. You know, there is the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento. All of these men have preserved legacies that have lasted now for 150 years, whereas the labor that actually built the railroad has disappeared along with the rails into the land that they carved it through. And of course, the form for speaking about the American West as landscape is the Western. And it's historically and conventionally been a machine for imperialism and for extending this colonial project of the American nation over these indigenous lands. And so when you say so-and-so is turning it on its head, I think it's an acknowledgement of how powerful that machine for myth-making and nation-building can be. But it's also an acknowledgement that it can be directed towards other ends and that we can apply that same function of myth-making towards non-imperialist modes. And so the research for it was very simple and it was fun to do because research for me is so much more fun than writing. And one of the questions that I often get is how can something so fantastical exist in this genre of the Western, which is traditionally extremely historically based, extremely grounded in reality. And to that, I say, I don't think it has been ever so grounded in reality. I think precisely because of its function as myth maker and because of the stories that it tells. I mean, in the Western, you have people who get shot in the stomach and then they're riding a horse for 800 miles. You know, that isn't on the same level of realism as someone with superpowers. And I think moreover, the mechanism of introducing the fantastical into an otherwise realist literature is to recontextualize the boundaries of what we consider magical and what we consider to be ordinary. Because the question that magical realism poses to its reader is you're viewing a text that seems to view the absolutely remarkable as being mundane. And so what elements in your own life out there beyond the book are remarkable, which you have come to view as mundane? What does it mean to be unarguably American today? For me, it really is, you're buying into this kind of dream, right? If you strip away all of the historical context and everything that we know that was bad about that time, there's this sense that the real America is this country that was formed out of a set of ideals in a way that historically at the time was quite rare. Like, are we an ethno-nationalist state? I think in practice, like we do end up being a state of white Protestants, but that's not in the constitution. Like in the constitution, we have this kind of set of attitudes and beliefs about what constitutes a person. And of course, that is then litigated and fought over and hard won over the next 250 odd years. But I think that is the dream being American is that our culture is defined by how we greet the world and this projection of our ideals. And I think at our best as a country, that's what we represent. We represent people who are accepting of others and who integrate. Despite all of our differences, we are in this giant country and we're all linked together by an agreement that we're all subject to rule of law, by an agreement to democracy, by an agreement in the rights of man. But that's the ideal, right? And in practice, it really does kind of fall apart. But I think it's worth preserving and it's worth striving towards. 
And I think it's easy to be very cynical about the nation and the direction that it's heading in. And there are certainly times when it is difficult for me to read the news. And I don't entirely sometimes. But I think it is worth being optimistic because in the end, that's what drives change. Pessimism is right there as a response, and it's really easy to get to. But pessimism often, I think, leads to inaction. And if everyone's pessimistic, then we will end up bringing about the future that we fear the most. For instance, something like climate change and this anthropogenic mass extinction that we're seeing going on and we're losing enormous fractions of our biodiversity with every passing year. That's bleak. And it does feel like the end of the world is upon us and we're entering into an unsurvivable planet. And it's okay to know that and to think that and to still strive for something because I think at its extremes, hope becomes insane. And you have to do something to fight it because otherwise we are going into the apocalypse. There, I think there's no question. And in order to preserve hope against that possibility, I think that's difficult. And so that's what I strive to do. You have the first influx of Asian immigrants into the United States around the 1850s. And in that year, they pass a law that levies a specifically higher tax on foreign miners. And so if you're a Chinese miner, you have to pay a higher tax than if you're a white miner. And like a year later, the Chinese immigrant population is like below 10,000, certainly not above 6,000 or so. And they actually raise the tax again. Right. And you see this development of an outsized fear and a disproportionate response to alterity in America that I think is very old. And I think you can trace it back to the founding of the country itself. And it certainly persists to this day. But you have this kind of legal and juridical framework that is rising up to isolate and stymie the Chinese immigrant in America in the 1850s and 60s. And so the anti-miscegenation laws, like a white woman cannot marry anybody else except a white man. Those laws appear, but they're not alone. They're accompanied by laws that tax Chinese people at a higher rate. They're accompanied by laws that prohibit Chinese students from going to the same public schools as white people. They're laws that prohibit Chinese people from giving evidence in court against or on behalf of a white man. So if a white person killed another person and you were the only witness and you were an Asian person, you would not be able to go to court. Your testimony would not stand. And at the same time that all this kind of juridical disenfranchisement is happening, the demand for Chinese labor is also increasing exponentially. The railroad is getting started. And so what the country is creating is this class of subjugated, rightsless workers who have nothing to do and no protections except to work. And when they do work, it's for much less and it's for much longer. And if they do get injured or something happens to them, they have no recourse. And I think it's a pattern that you see often in America where juridically and socially you create this class of people that can just be ruthlessly exploited for no consequence. And I think that's something that we see happening in the 1850s. And of course, it culminates with the Chinese Exclusion Act when the United States says we will not be accepting any more immigrants from Asia. And that lasts pretty much until the 1960s. It lasts almost 100 years. And it's just a reflection of this modality of how the country has traditionally treated immigrants, but also this class of workers that has been perpetually created and maintained by these different modes. And I think one thing that I've always really felt is that the divide between human and animal is really constructed by humans for the purpose of maintaining our own sanity. Because when we do these experiments, when we say like, oh, can dogs have object permanence? Like, yeah, they do. And so we develop all of these higher order tests because we're trying to segregate this realm of rationality, which comes out of this enlightenment idea that the humans are the only rational creature and humans are the measure of man. And the instability and discomfort that we have with animals, I think, comes from that feeling of when you really connect with an animal, you begin to doubt how much of a human you are because you can see across that that divide. And for Ming, interactions with animals is my way as a writer of putting him more closely in touch with the landscape and with nature and saying that he isn't just passing through these lands, but he's actually of them. I was born in Beijing. 
and emigrated to the U.S. with my family when I was four. And I was visiting my relatives in China quite often until COVID. But it has always been the land of a 14-hour airplane ride, and then I can't read anything. And so I've had a kind of interesting, but I think also quite common experience with China as a Chinese-American, which is this kind of far-off land with which I'm associated, for which I have to account, but it feels at times very distant from me. But on the other hand, in America, I'm Chinese-American. In China, I'm just an American. I'm too American for China and too Chinese for America. And so there is this kind of invisible middle that you have to create where you're able to coexist and kind of bridge those two identities. You know, there's been a lot of scholarship and academic back and forth in recent decades about something as small as a hyphen between Asian and American. Does that hyphen need to be there? Is that hyphen doing a lot of work that we don't want it to be doing? And I think we're all trying to work through this kind of mediation of how close are we to one place and how close are we to another place. And in the book specifically, China is almost an idea because Ming isn't born there. He doesn't speak the language. And so it's instead this thing that he has to continuously encounter for which he has no response or recourse, especially in that era when all the immigrants that are coming over are mostly from the Pearl River Delta. They're mostly very poor. China itself is a sovereign power, is in a really weakened state. So the relation of these two countries geopolitically has certainly changed over the last 150 years. But on the ground, in terms of individual experience, I think it is highly subjective and it's highly individualized. It depends on how well you speak Chinese, how often you visit, how many relatives you have there. But it's something that we're all trying to work out together step by step. And when we do come up with our own partial answers, we put them out in the form of stories and we build out this collective understanding together. I think that we're all trying to figure out stability for ourselves. Writing is a space of play. Storytelling is a space of play. It's almost like the mechanism of dreams in the story where you have a space where there are no consequences, but there are, right? So you have this duality where you can lose the game. You can play badly. And then when you're done, you can return to the real world. But the fact that the game has happened, the fact that the play has happened is still there. And so that might have consequences beyond the fact that it has no consequence, which is very like Zen Cohen about it. But I think it is this null space where you get to construct worlds and see how they work and then step back from it. And I think that is the joy of fiction and the joy of writing. You know, what little there is for me, but the joy of writing as such is being able to build and exit and return. I think so much of historical work is going back and trying to piece together the things that have not been preserved. And so even with biodiversity and planet, I think we should try to have less impact on our surroundings and more impact on each other. There's less and less investment in the humanities in some places, and that really saddens me. I think art is important because it's something that we do as humans that has no purpose beyond how it makes us feel. And I think the purpose of art is to preserve the feeling of being alive and to communicate that to others. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.